Hello and welcome back to the Bench Press. I'm Robert Denault here with my colleague Jess Coleman, as always, coming to you from New York City. And we're coming from a little bit of a hiatus, but we have a lot of ground to cover. Obviously, as anybody watching U.S. courts and U.S. politics knows, there's been quite a bit of what feels like almost a constant collision course, basically bumper cars between American politics and the U.S. court system, in particular because one major player in the U.S. political system finds himself mired in almost every courtroom imaginable. So today, Jess and I are going to... oh. oh you don't know Jess? No, like, like, uh, yeah, no, no idea. No idea. Like Johnny Depp or something. Yeah. Mm, close. Uh, he's also <laughs> a, a pirate who has younger women pooping in his bed. No, it's, um, Donald Trump. And, <laughs> and he is basically running the judiciary in the United States. Ragged with multiple criminal cases, huge civil penalties, and of course, a Supreme Court challenge to his candidacy for the presidency of the United States. So Jess and I are going to do an overall rundown today of where each case stands, give you a quick update, and then we're going to talk about what the remainder of this political season through November 2024 looks like for the American courts grappling with these cases, what is the timing, what are the issues these judges are going to have to face, and what does it mean for all of us watching them struggle with this? So Jess, start us off with what the Supreme Court recently addressed for the first time in U.S. history. So we've talked about this before, uh, the case challenging Colorado's decision to disqualify President Trump from the presidential ballot under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment to brush up. Uh, Section 3, broadly speaking, says that if you have engaged in insurrection, you are not eligible to run for certain higher offices. There is some debate about what those offices are, but broadly speaking, insurrectionists are allowed to run for office under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. And uh, obviously, that leads to the question of can President Trump, who orchestrated an insurrection on January 6th, run for president. Some states, including Colorado, said that he cannot. That was appealed up to the Supreme Court, who heard oral arguments a couple weeks ago now. Bobby and I were listening very closely, live tweeting the whole thing. Um, There's a lot to go through in terms of the legalese and the, the weirdness of that clause that the justices spoke about with the lawyers. But Broadly speaking, if there's really one takeaway, the justices feel like it's unworkable. If states could do this on their own, it just gets too crazy for different states to have different candidates on the ballot. And that's really what it comes down to. Um, Bobby, I'll let you I'll let you start and give your hot take on this. What did you make of the of the oral arguments? I mean. I, we both talked about this a bunch of times and understanding fully that 
of all the cases that have been in the press about Trump, I think a lot of people sort of hear this one and get a headache and they're like, I don't really understand this, but it seems like it would be really misguided for courts to disqualify Donald Trump from ever holding office again. Jess and I have talked about it in the sense of, well, okay, but the law exists. It's out there. It might be old. It's from the Civil War. It's an amendment adopted after the Civil War, but it it's there and it applies. It's important for courts not to just not apply the law at all to Trump. I think it was healthy for the courts to wrestle with the question. It seems almost certain that the Supreme Court, including multiple liberal or quote unquote liberal justices, are going to find that whatever that rule is in the Constitution, it doesn't mean states get to on their own decide someone's an insurrectionist and bar them from the presidency. That's unworkable because other states might not abide by the same rules. What happens then? You have states could be uh, sort of like reciprocally angry about it and disqualify their own candidates based on their own views. And then you don't end up with anybody getting an electoral majority and it's just all chaos. I think where they'll come out on this is that Congress might not need to pass a, a specific mechanism for someone to go to a court and prove this, but there may be some requirement that Congress acknowledges something as an insurrection in order for the for the clause to apply. That's my guess, is that they're going to say they, they need to pass by just a, just a simple majority, a law declaring or a resolution declaring a certain event as an insurrection and therefore people who participated in it being disqualified under, under the amendment. Yeah, and, and I, I agree with that. And it's, it's noteworthy about this case, this oral argument, that there was very little law going on. There was a lot of, it was very difficult to follow because you could tell the justices were just uncomfortable of, with this from the start and were trying to sort of reverse engineer a legal yeah. theory to get to the result. And that's, that's a fine way to do things if you, if you want to do it that way. I don't think that's illegitimate, but it's noteworthy that that's not how they do things ever. I mean, a lot of these justices are like rabidly against doing things that way, but sure. like, like, like you said, they're probably going to write an opinion saying, um, you know, Congress has to take some sort of action declared an insurrection by a simple majority. We should note that there are serious problems with that. And, and in a legal sense, not even in a political sense, like the section three of the 14th amendment says that you can remove the disqualifications by a two thirds vote of Congress. But if you then say that Congress has to declare an insurrection or disqualify people by a majority up front, right. Right. Well, then by a majority, they could take it away. So then what's the two thirds really, work doing? Right. That? So it's just to me, if, if there's one thing to take away with this from the oral arguments, it's that this, the justices think Trump may have engaged in an insurrection, but it doesn't matter because allowing states to disqualify him unilaterally is just too messy. And, yeah. you, you know, we can, I, I, we can I, yeah, see that that's, that's true, right? I do. But, I mean, I think, yeah, it's, it's, it is too messy. It's one of those, uh, because so many years passed after this amendment was adopted without real robust enforcement of the amendment, when it really could have been robustly enforced in many ways. And it was sort of a little bit after the Civil War, but not, not robustly. Um, I think that passage of time without real working on it through the system now we're 150 years out and they're trying to put together a 
a recipe for what it looks like to declare somebody's engaged in insurrection in 2021 and or well, 2024 now. Um, but you know, mm-hmm. for all that, I, I think I'm glad they wrestled with the question. It's healthy for courts to wrestle with this question. It's normal for them to come out in this way. You know, you know like you said, Jess, that it, you couldn't really follow it very well, partially because yeah. they didn't really talk much about insurrection. They no. talk much more. It, it really doesn't matter whether they think he did or didn't. They're talking about who has the authority to make that determination. And I think they're probably, from a practical sense, coming to the right outcome that one state can't decide basically for everybody that mm-hmm. it happened and that he's right. disqualified. It's just not right. the way and, this should work. And But it's, again, like, I agree, and that's where they're going. But it's important for people to remember, that's just not like what Section 3 says. Section 3 says, <laughs> if you engage in insurrection, you're disqualified. It doesn't say, uh, unless it's messy and scary and it's easy or not to deal with it at all. I mean, right? I get I, that, I, but I think the, the pushback on that is like the First Amendment doesn't say strict scrutiny, but we make rules sure. around how it gets applied and how courts are going to determine whether it was properly done or not properly done. And the flip nuance of this little insurrection disqualification argument is a lot of arguments were made that the clause on its face does not say president. And we talked right. a lot about that, okay, but it wouldn't really make a lot of sense if it didn't apply to president. On the reverse of that, president's the only nationally elected thing. So you could even argue a state right. maybe could find that a representative was barred within the contours of its own state from representing that state in Congress for a finding of insurrection. Maybe maybe there's some nuanced rule there that allows them to apply a lower standard for someone running for a, a state-contained office. But for an, the only nationally elected position that is barred from being elected, it makes sense that some national entity would make that finding to me. It just kind of does. That's fair. Which that's would be, fair. Which would be um, Congress. That's fair. But, you know, my... And we won't have to, we don't have to go on this for too long. We but we don't have time, <laughs> right? We don't have time. But you know, my my overall take on this is that you know I think the the impulse to avoid a messy situation and rule in favor of Trump and say that he that he should not be disqualified from the presidential election tells you a lot about the state of our institutions and in particular the judiciary. You know, like when it when it comes to letting states outlaw abortion or letting huge corporations spend endless money in elections or disenfranchising voters with voter ID laws. We're told, sorry, the law is the law. We have no other choice. But when it comes to preventing an insurrection as someone who orchestrated an attack on the Capitol to stop the certification of a presidential election from running for office pursuant to a crystal clear constitutional provision, you know, now we're told it's too messy. This isn't for the courts to decide this is the time to exercise restraint. And I think that dichotomy, and I concede it's messy. I concede that practically speaking, it's difficult, and maybe the court should stay out of it this time. But the dichotomy between when the courts say they're going to step in and when they're not, I think says a lot about why we're in the situation we're in. Yeah, no, you're not wrong. I mean, it's hard to square uh, the state's rights to take away yeah. certain you know, rights that were previously enumerated and maybe not protected anymore uh, with now they're suddenly not, they don't have the right to determine who's fit to run for 
presidential electors in their state. Uh, you know, it's it's hard to square. I don't disagree. Um, but marching right behind this case is another case at the U.S. Supreme Court, which would also be a historic first if the court grants hearing. And that is Trump's claim of presidential immunity in the D.C. criminal case. Okay, just giving you a quick lay of the land. There are four ongoing criminal cases against Donald Trump. In chronological order, those cases are a New York state criminal case uh, related to falsification of business documents about hush money for Stormy Daniels back in 2016. Then there is the Mar-a-Lago documents case where he stole all the classified documents and hid them and wouldn't give them back and apparently was maybe uh, showing them to people who didn't have the right to see them, et cetera, et cetera. That's in federal court in Florida. The third case is a DC federal criminal case about Trump's Conduct leading up to January 6th and conduct after the 2020 election. Uh, there's a bunch of conspiracy charges and obstruction charges, basically about conspiracies and efforts to obstruct the certification of Biden's win on January 6th. After that is the state Georgia RICO case that has like 17 defendants and people pleading guilty and lots of stuff going on. So we could just go in chronological order, but these cases are moving at like very different paces based on their judges, based on their courts, and based on Trump's arguments in each of the cases. So we decided to go from the top court all the way down to the lowest state court. And if we start at the top court, currently, the DC case about Trump's conduct after 2021 has a claim of presidential immunity that Trump has fought all the way from the trial court judge who ruled against him in a pretty long decision. Uh, and the D.C. Circuit Appeals Court, which unanimously a panel voted against him. Uh, and now he is asking the U.S. Supreme Court to issue a stay of that lower court ruling against him and hear his case for why he is immune for the charges in Washington, D.C. related to his conduct after the election. Now, this is a monumental case. The judges who have ruled on it have not been sparing in the amount of pages and research and citations that they have done and offered up in unanimous rebuke of this man's claim that he is somehow immune from criminal prosecution for conduct that he undertook as the president of the United States. Back in December, when Trump first appealed the immunity decision, uh, he appealed to the D.C. Circuit and prosecutors asked the Supreme Court to weigh in immediately, basically saying, look, this is going to be unduly delayed. This trial is scheduled for March. It's coming up very fast. If we have to delay it, you know, it really delays the interest of justice. And this is similar to another case of a president claiming a special right or entitlement and an upcoming trial demanding a resolution of this quickly. And that's Richard Nixon in the Nixon tapes case. And the Supreme Court in that instance did fast track the appeal past the D.C. Circuit, which never heard that. And they heard it before. Uh, and it was that's abnormal. That's not usual for the process. Here in December, the Supreme Court declined to take it on the fast track. Notably, no dissents. So the liberal justices did not write in dissent of that decision. The D.C. Circuit heard it on very quick basis, issued a ruling within a few weeks, and it's a pretty airtight ruling. It's very robust. Um, basically, now, the D.C. The DC Circuit, I think it was February 6th, 
issued this decision. They gave him six days to seek a stay. He sought a stay, so the case is pending is is stayed until Supreme Court rules on the stay, not necessarily taking the whole appeal, but just rules on the stay. Right. So, <laughs> any questions? That was yes. a lot. <laughs> good, good work there. Oh my gosh. So, uh, where to begin? So the let's talk about the fact that it's taking a long time. Okay, mm-hmm. for them mm-hmm. to make to tell us whether they're going to hear this case or not. Last time, tell us what. Yeah, they're st- going to stay the case or not. Right, right. They and could deny time, the stay, but accept hearing. They could deny the stay, but accept hearing, which would in a, in a strange way. That would be strange. Yeah. So the last time we spoke, you said smartly <laughs> that they might not take this case at all which surprised me because of the nature of the individuals on this court and the right. role of this court in public life generally these days. The idea that the, that the justices would not pass on an issue this gargantuan sort right. of struck me as no way. But then they didn't take the fast track and there were no dissents, which could from the liberal justices, which could indicate to you that they believe that they might not take the case at all and they don't really need to take it up because yeah. they don't because they know where they pretty much had a good idea where the DC Court of Appeals is going to land on this. And now, so we have the decision from the DC Court of Appeals with the ruling we expected. And now there's this delay, which could indicate that the only thing holding it up right now is Alito and Thomas furiously writing dissents in their basement while they call Harlan Crow and ask him what else to include, which, you know, <laughs> causes some delay. So because he's out on a yacht somewhere, might not have internet access or phone yeah. service. So that takes a, lo- a little while. Otherwise, if they were determined to take this case and they had to take the votes, they had, they had the votes to take the case, we probably would have heard something already, no? It's, it's weird. I mean, it... it- if they were going to grant the stay and take the case, I don't really know what would be happening right now. Like, there's no real reason it should have taken. It's been they've had all the briefing on this for ten days now. Mm-hmm. So, if they were inclined to immediately grant a stay, which is an if this weren't this person, it would never be happening. But if yeah. they wanted to halt this criminal proceeding to hear this appeal of a potential immunity that's never existed before in law. It seems like if there were the votes to do that, they would be there instantaneously. I don't know what persuading you would need to like decide whether or not you thought that this needed to be heard. Like, no. it it either you think there's something to be appealed here or you don't. The other thing that makes me more inclined to think that maybe exactly what you're saying is going on is going on. People are writing dissents, or they're writing an order that is succinct denying certiorari and denying the stay, but articulating in very brief terms that this just applies to this case only, that they are not ruling on the broad issue of presidential immunity, but as they see the record in this case, there's not sufficient merits for them to hear this appeal or grant the stay. Yeah, I mean, 
that's interesting. Um, that that would be pretty inappropriate if you ask me, because uh, you know, like they don't. I don't, I don't know. I mean, it's basically it's basically saying to Trump, like, go ahead and break the law again and try again with us under a different set of facts. Just for a second, yeah. for the people who are listening <laughs> and hearing us go seven million miles a minute, because that's the pace all these cases are going at, and they're like, what the hell are these two guys talking about? This <laughs> what we're talking about is. Donald Trump's lawyer stood up in court and made some pretty crazy arguments that unless a president is impeached and convicted for his conduct, he cannot be prosecuted for anything that could be construed as an official act. And what the judges pressed him on was, what if he ordered SEAL Team 6 to go kill a, a rival in the United States, a political rival? And you're saying he could not be prosecuted for that unless he was impeached and convicted. So if his party, much like Trump's party did after the insurrection, stood with him and didn't convict him and said, at that time, let the court system handle it, then they can turn around and say, actually, it can't. He's immune because we didn't convict him in Congress. And so they made these really kind of bizarre, crazy, big arguments. What Trump did in that's at issue in this indictment. I think at least, maybe not to you and I, Jess, but to some justices sitting on the court, is so out there and so unusual that a president would be saying fraud, 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 fraud about stuff he doesn't even know, not caring about the consequences of judgments and crazy fines that he now owes for defaming people and making up lies and all this stuff. And they may look at these facts and say, this is so far outside the scope of official acts. We don't have enough in this record to really be talking about the issue of presidential immunity as this guy is raising it. The question of whether someone could be prosecuted over a drone strike, like that is a, a question that we would like to address someday. But this case is not really a good example for how we should address it. And we don't want this because what's that phrase, Jess? Bad cases make bad law. And so it, this case is so bad on presidential immunity facts that it would not shock me if they are trying to contort themselves into some way of not taking it, but holding because the D.C. Circuit ruled there is no presidential immunity at all. And I don't know if the Supreme Court yeah. would agree with that. So I, I wonder if they're behind the scenes trying to work out a way of saying, whoa, 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 we might want to not subscribe to the view that there's none at all, but this case, there's none. And yeah. they may not want to take the time to actually hear the case to do that. Yeah, that's fair. But as I was saying, like, that's not an appropriate way to, to do things because they <laughs> wouldn't have five they wouldn't have five votes behind that, right? Like necessarily. Whereas if I don't they took know. the case, they'd have to say, right. It's just not procedurally. Like when you don't take a case, that's what you're saying is we don't, there could be very many reasons for not taking a case. But if you don't take a case, you don't take a case. And if, you, if you're going to sort of pass judgment on it, which you are doing by saying, we just don't think this is a good conduit for it, but we're leaving but the question the open. Then, this is something they've increasingly done over the years with the shadow docket and things that people have talked about. That uh, Look, right. I can't pretend to be – I'm not a Supreme Court expert. I, my understanding of the shadow docket is that it, there's a practice that has gotten more popular at the Supreme Court that used to be very frowned upon but 
justices have been denying hearing in cases, but sort of articulating legal reasoning in the denials. And like that, you're not supposed to do that because if you, if there's no briefing, like there's no arguing that's happening, you can't come to a ruling in not coming to a ruling that's inappropriate and it's not how the procedure should work, but it is something that's grown more common and nothing about this case is appropriate. So it would not yeah. surprise me if they end up treating this as a shadow docket. And also, in in our defense, frankly, just speaking candidly, I want the case to move forward. And so as much as it you would be inappropriate the underlying for them, criminal case to yes. move forward. Yeah. And you know what's going to delay it? If they properly hear the case. Yeah, absolutely. So absolutely. This is one time where maybe I'm like, <laughs> this would be a good shadow docket decision. I'd be okay with it. Like. Yeah, yeah, it's just, it's just, you know, they, they just, they can't just do the right thing and say we're not going to hear it. They, they have to throw all their all kinds of nonsense on it and say hey, try again next time, Donald. But I, I don't disagree. I, I wished a little bit that the D.C. Circuit hadn't really opined on the issue of presidential immunity as much, and they were careful to say that their reasoning still applies as to this case. But it's hard to not you know, pay attention to the fact that they, they found there's no immunity at all. Um, and I don't know if especially people like Kavanaugh and Roberts and Alito would agree yeah. with that at all. Um, yeah. I mean, anyway, you said that so. the, the, you said that, you know, bad cases make bad law. It's also true that bad judges make bad law. And the reality <laughs> is that, that these guys, if they, if they're inclined to, 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 rule in tr- Trump's favor, whether in this case or in some other case, or, or they want to make some broad pronouncement on immunity uh, that is not good, mm-hmm. then they're, they're, they're going to find a way, you know, they're going to find a way. So it is what it is. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're not wrong. And speaking of bad judges making bad law, let's go to the stolen documents case down in Florida, mm. because that is full of some bullshit decisions by Judge Aileen Cannon. So... <laughs> Uh, this case is, is moving in maybe the strangest fashion I I can remember for any criminal case in federal court that I've seen. Um, Judge Cannon has been making some very, very strange decision in what is ordinarily a fairly common lead up to a criminal case. It's really not that much insanely different in most criminal cases of course charges are different and in this case one thing that's unusual is uh classified evidence gets specially treated ahead of trial under a a statute called sepa and so like those hearings are a bit unusual but other than that judge cannon has been doing some batshit crazy things normally prosecutors don't disclose their witness list to the defense until 30 days before trial or less. Sometimes judges say two weeks. Um, you Defendants usually ask for earlier. It's sort of pro forma. And sometimes you can make a case for why this case is special or the testimony is going to be especially complex and we really need to like know what this is ahead of time, whatever. But ordinarily it gets denied. Like it's, it's really not even a question. She ordered prosecutors to disclose the witness list to Trump I think two or three weeks ago in January, which is now the trial is scheduled for May. So we're talking five months early. Prosecutors had a big problem with this and filed a motion to reconsider that, which 
is pretty delicate to do in criminal court, Jess. I don't know if you have a lot like any encounters with this in your practice. But when no. you file a motion to reconsider something, you either think you have like really great grounds to either get something dismissed or if you're the prosecutors here, you think the judge was wrong and you're basically telling her like you were wrong and we want to give you one more shot at getting it right before we just go appeal to the 11th circuit because this is incorrect and you're just incorrect on the law. Um they basically said there's the the harm that is possible to witnesses in any case should be sufficient to not have them disclose the witness list this early, especially in this case. It's not like there it's not like the burden gets reversed here because the defendant is a special guy. In fact, the fact he is famous talking a lot about the case and people have been targeted in other cases and that case. There's, it's very hard to understand why she would come out in favor of him getting an early look at the witness list here. It really doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, the 11th Circuit's already reversed her a couple times in this case on appointing a special master and halting the government's ability to review evidence that it seized at Mar-a-Lago. So I think they are angling to get back in front of the 11th Circuit here. Uh, separately, Trump had a bunch of normal pretrial motions that were due. Uh, asking for more discovery. He similarly made an, uh, a motion to dismiss based on a presidential immunity argument, much yeah, like really, the DC really normal. case. Very normal. normal stuff. Well, that that one's not normal, but like the <laughs> motions for discovery are normal and blah, blah, blah. And yes, it's normal yes. actually to compile lots of those things into one big, what's called omnibus motion. But just you just put everything in. We had one case where we needed uh, an audio expert and we needed, um, uh, we wanted expanded discovery and we wanted lo lots of different, uh, I think like an expert translator. And you just put those requests in one big motion that you file at the same time. Trump's lawyers asked her, which is normal, for permission to make that filing. Just a big motion. Please expand our page limit. We're going to put it all in one thing. <laughs> she weirdly told them to file 10 separate motions, gave them an expanded page count for each one, and said, articulate in each one whether you want a hearing on that issue. Whereas most judges would be like, we're doing one hearing for your whole omnibus motion. And we're going to go through this request, this request, this request, this request, all in one day. If we don't finish it in one day, maybe we extend to day two. She is giving them as many cracks at the apple of hearings, which is just delay. It's just another word for delay. If you have to have two hearings instead of one, that's two calendar days, two different things. The judge has other things on her schedule. The courthouse has other things. It is – I. I I don't know anybody who has made sense of why she ordered them to break apart an omnibus motion into 10 separate motions and instructed them to ask for hearings in the motions. It's actually just kind of nuts. Um, hard to look at it any other way than delay. The case is currently scheduled for May, but everyone I'm seeing analyzing this who has more experience with classified evidence and hearings like that is saying that there's just no chance this is going in May. She hasn't even done an initial ruling on the classified materials yet. He'll get to appeal some of that stuff. I mean, we're just looking at delay, delay, delay. The problem is there's just not much prosecutors can do in Florida. Um, the, the rules it, in the 11th Circuit are really strict, and unless they can show 
some extra court, like outside of the court corruption by the judge or some other conflict. They can't they can't say that she keeps getting stuff wrong as a reason to get it reassigned. It's just not sufficient. It's just so frustrating because I think this is the the case with the most, you know, I don't want to say like political appeal, but it's the one that resonates with people the most. Yeah. Because it is yeah. so brazen. It's not it's so clear cut. <laughs> yeah, it's so clear cut. There's really no like novel legal theories to it at all. Like this is very, very clear cut. There are pictures yeah. of him like putting classified documents into his bathroom at Mar-a-Lago. Everyone can understand it. And then it ends up with this judge who happens to be, you know, pretty in the Trump camp from everything we yeah. know about her. And yeah. look, it, it's totally fair to question whether, what's going on here because, you know, we I we understand you know judges are independent and we're not supposed to you know cast judgments on everything they're doing and they're they're insulated from political pressure but you don't get the benefit of the doubt in this situation this is an important case that everyone is watching everyone understands it has implications yeah. for the presidential election for the country at large for our democracy and right. you're sitting there telling people to file 30 motions when they could just file one. Like, what are you I mean, doing? That guy, yeah, that's, that's as simple as it is. <laughs> Telling people to file 30 motions instead of filing just one. Have you ever thought of a judge who would ever instruct you to overpopulate the docket? Like, I, I've never encountered it. Judges Every judge go, I've ever encountered is getting driven insane by how many docket filings yes. they get. They want you to and put it in go, one thing. They go to such lengths to avoid yes. this sort of situation. Like they'll even do things that might not even be allowed. Yeah, to, exactly. To, you to might be like begging for cases. your right to file a separate motion. And they're like, no, denied. Just you get two pages to address it in your other motion. And you're like, oh, Jesus, that's definitely not yeah, right. So, okay. <laughs> like we're not in Judge Cannon's head. Um, you know, but you don't get the you don't get the benefit of the doubt in this situation. I'm sorry. You know, this is this is too important to yeah, sit around I, and just let the, months pass. It's crazy. Right. And the, the flip of it too is the um disclosing the witness list. I I I can't make any sense of uh of why you would need to do that prematurely. No. The rules don't accord for it. Like the rules of criminal procedure and like there's no reason that they should be having to turn over their witness list this early, but she's just saying that they did. It's Trump would have to turn over his witness list or both, both sides. I I haven't read her uh, decision on this. I believe the issue at least is it's, I no, I think it's just the government. Just the government. I think it's just the government. I don't think the defense has to disclose theirs. Well, that I mean, that even makes even less sense, not only because it's like different rules for different people, but because this is a defendant who's known to like attack his witnesses. So you want their name out there longer? That's what <laughs> that's I, that's the chief argument of the government. But I, I so think about it the flip way. In a normal case, it actually like, of course, it's the government's job to bring an affirmative case. So it's not the defendant's job to tell you in advance what his defenses are going to be. But it is the government's right, job right. to give the defendant enough material to, to know what the allegations are and how to defend themselves. But think about that. Even under that system, 
the rules don't require the government to give you more than 30 days notice of the witness list. Like you have the indictment, you know what's in it, you have the evidence, we've produced it to you in discovery over months. 30 days out, we'll tell you who we're settling on testifying. And they don't always call everybody, but they give you a, a witness list of the people who've received subpoenas to appear at the trial and are on call basically to testify. And the reverse of that is that I don't really, I, I believe some notice is required, but I don't think the defense has to actually like put the government. I, I don't know. I, I, I might be off on that. They, there might be some reciprocal discovery rule about witness sharing uh, that they do have to disclose. But again, we're talking like 14 days before trial. We're not talking January 2024 when the trial's in May. Um, so this is just nuts. And the fact of the matter is, I think we're stuck with this with this woman. And I don't know why prosecutors brought this case in Florida. Frankly, they could have brought it in, in D.C. And I think they would have been successful fighting a venue challenge. But... What are you going to do? You know, this is the case they brought. So uh, that brings us to the state courts here in New York. Uh, back Your hometown. to the state of New York. I feel much better yes. now. Yeah. I was getting a little Take homesick talking about Florida. So <laughs> <laughs> it was about a year ago that uh, Alvin Bragg filed the first criminal indictment against President, former President Trump. That was right around the time we started this podcast, it, and it was not related. It just happened to be good timing. I remember me and you walked over to the courthouse to see what was yeah, going on. It was, it was I forgot about very, that. Very, very well, that odd fun. day. But yeah, yeah so um, you probably haven't heard much about it since, and that's because criminal cases take a long time to begin with, but there have been a series of delays in this case, some of them in connection with the other cases that we've been discussing. The guy has a lot on his calendar, president, former President Trump. So uh, <laughs> judges don't want him. Can't really make him go to trial immediately because you need time to prepare, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah. uh, but we're getting close now for this trial. Jury selection is slated to begin about a month from now on March 25th. They're estimating four to six weeks for the trial, which 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 feels like a like a long time um, yeah it feels kind of long i don't know if it'll actually take that long i think new york courts yeah. tend to over calendar like they'll, yeah. they'll put more weeks on the schedule just in case it runs long but sure like and, and the reason it feels like a long time to give you a little background on what this case is about to remind you um this isn't particularly complicated this, these charges arise from the payments that were made to the adult film actress known as stormy daniels Prior to the 2016 presidential election, uh, hush money payments to keep her affairs with President Trump quiet. This is brought under New York law as a business falsification of documents case. The payments were hidden in various ledgers of the Trump organization and whatnot. And the indictment charges that those documents, which have to be filed with the state, et cetera, et cetera, were fraudulent because they did not disclose the payments made to Stormy Daniels. So it is a little bit of a novel case legally, something we've talked about before, but it's not something that's particularly complicated. And it's also not something that I think many people consider as um, brazen as you know January 6th related case or the stolen documents case. But we should say, yeah. as we've discussed before, that this is serious conduct. This is brought as a business falsification 
business documents falsification case. But this was done in connection with an election. And these hush money payments were made in order to keep this information about potential affairs between Donald Trump and Stormy Daniels from getting into the public. And, you know, anyone who's witnessed a presidential election before knows that that sort of information can have a very, very, very large effect on the results of a presidential election. Uh, And this conduct kept that information from the public. So when people say, which they're going to start saying again, I guarantee you that this is a weak case or that this is not an important case. It is an important case because this conduct was really serious and, you know, we, we can't prove a negative, but quite potentially had a very serious effect on the 2016 election. Yeah. I mean, we have a much longer episode from a year ago about this and why uh, all the pundits talking about this as a weak case or sort of legally unsound case are just off base. Um, It'll come up again. I mean, they're they're going to attack it, especially based on um, the the lack of real jail time or penalty that this faces. But I don't. It's not really right. about that. I it, it, if this were all about <laughs> getting penalties, then I think people actually would have some justification in saying this is about putting him in jail. I think right. what this is about is a pattern of behavior that a person gets to do and say whatever they want in order to obtain more power. Like everybody keeps saying like, uh, oh, you know, Trump is untouchable and all this stuff or Trump, it's about holding people accountable, et cetera. And like it, it is about holding people accountable. But I think what a lot of these cases have in common is his conduct, his criminal alleged criminal conduct to obtain more power or to keep a lot of power. Um, to protect himself from accountability. It's not just that, oh, this is important to do to powerful people to keep them accountable. This is important because these were crimes committed to obtain power. And falsification of these documents was to cover up stuff that was going to get in the way of him winning this election. The stealing of the government documents from, uh, from the White House was to do God knows what to obtain wealth or obtain value or power and holding them over the US government in some way or offering them to others who found them valuable and obtaining power that way. Um, the the Georgia Rico case, uh, which we haven't gotten to yet, but is about, you know, crimes committed to try to steal electoral votes out of Georgia and keep power or obtain power for a second term. Um same with the DC's case that we talked about with with the immunity hearing earlier. So, you know, I understand why people are going to look at it and say Stormy Daniels, and that was so long ago. And it's like, no, but it this is was the beginning of a pattern of I can do and say what I want as long as it's to obtain more power. And if I end up winning the power, nobody can ever stop me, and I'll just keep going. Yeah, yeah. No, that that is an even better way, probably the best way to think about these things, because I I, I think there's a tendency in our media environment to over pundit ties, or if that's a, that should be a word, but it's definitely not a word. <laughs> but, and, and to torture these things in analysis. Yeah. And, and when you do that, sure, you know, you eventually get to, oh, you know, he put the documents in his bathroom in Mar-a-Lago. Like, did, did it really have an effect on anything? Like, was it really that big a deal? You know, with the January 6th, it's like, oh, it was just speech related. It wasn't really you know, anything serious. And with this, it's, you know, it's just document, you know? Right. So it, it's like when you can, you can 
explain away anything. And when you torture things and just overanalyze, you you come you end up with absurdities. And like you said, the real thing that brings all of these together is that this guy just does whatever he wants to yeah. get power, to make more money. And all this is, is just starting to hold him accountable to play by the rules that everyone else plays by. It's, yeah. it's just about power. It's just about money. It's just about fraud. It's about this guy just doing whatever he wants and yeah. making a mockery of everyone from the voters to you know, the government, to our institutions, to our courts. And when you frame it that way, you know, yeah. I think most well-meaning people with good intentions realize that this is, this is serious. I mean, this guy, this matters. Is, yeah, this, this matters. matters. And when you look you at it, just in let that people lens, do whatever they want. Yeah. When you look at it at the lens of the 2016 case in New York is the beginning of the pattern of, of criminal conduct to hold on to or get power. What's also really alarming is the crimes get worse and worse over time, which makes you yes. realize what's what's next. What's he going to do next mm -hmm. to hold on to or get more power? He went from falsifying business records to cover up uh, having sex with a porn star to uh, defaming and attacking election workers and, and trying to persuade people to fabricate vote totals and then encouraging a mob to to commit violence at the Capitol and hurt Mike Pence, his own vice president, to stealing government classified nuclear material and putting it in his house, in his bathroom, and doing <laughs> God knows what with it. This is getting like the the ramp up over four years. What's what's going to be the 2024 version? Like if, if we don't do anything that's just going to keep going up this, you know, it's a snowball effect and it's just to keep getting bigger and bigger and worse and worse until until it's so big that courts can't do anything to stop it yeah 2024 it it can get worse it will get worse <laughs> believe there's, me there's, it can and probably your, will <laughs> there's your slogan so, uh, well, quickly before we do these well, well quickly before we move on to these because i did forget to put this in our outline the georgia rico case Plugging away slowly, there's been these very headline-grabbing disqualification hearings about Fonnie Willis and this special prosecutor that she appointed, who she evidently had a romantic relationship with for some period of time. They're not together anymore. Some great TV. You know, I, I got a lot of texts from people who were watching it saying, when are you and Jess going to do a podcast? What the heck? Like, I want some coverage about Fonnie Willis. And I was like, yeah, we're working mm. on it. We're tied up. But... um. Look, I I see the resistance tweeters out there uh, getting mad at me every time I say this, and I, I don't I haven't seen anything that's grounds for disqualification. But my God, is this really bad judgment? And mm -hmm. I'm not saying it means she should be disqualified at all. I'm just saying it's fair to look at this and say, what the hell were you thinking? <laughs> I. And mostly because yeah. I look at this guy, Wade, and I'm like, why, why did we need him? I, I don't yeah. see him bringing a ton of expertise to the case. But look, I, don't, I also don't see the kind of wrongdoing that would justify her being disqualified or him. I think it would be appropriate for her to remove him as a special prosecutor at this point, though. And frankly, based on the public yes. statements and the testimony he gave – doesn't seem like a huge loss the guy's okay he doesn't seem like he's 
the best criminal attorney in all of Georgia. I do think she was trying to alleviate the workload for her office. That's my guess is that she knew him, knew his law firm, knew he had the staffing ability and was trying to not have to deal with allegations that her office was dropping the ball on other criminal cases while dealing with this huge case, which I get. And I think that's totally reasonable. Um, But at this juncture, this sideshow has now been going on for three, four weeks, and it just keeps getting weirder. They just brought in these cell phone records that suggest they were in touch before they both just testified. They, I, it's, it's weird. Yeah, the like, like I was saying before, that there's a a tendency for pundits to overanalyze things. There's also a tendency of these sort of you you called them the resistance Twitter, but like these legal experts. And I love the resistance. Who are, I, yeah, I love who the are, resistance, but yeah, who are like, you know, like in their living rooms, just constantly looking only at like court filings and statutes. And there's a tendency and we're, you know, I'm, I've been a victim of it before oh, yeah, too. Guilty. To, guilty. I've done it. To, to sort of forget the world out there and just right. think that the only thing that matters is what the rule says, what the outcome is likely to be, what it should be. But like, that's actually, that's one part of it. It's an important part of it, but it's only one part of it. And there's a much bigger part of this, which is that this guy's running for president and Fox News and the entire right-wing media apparatus is working 24-7 to discredit this and make it not matter. And I'm sorry, but whether or not this was... Yeah, you do. And whether or not this is legally disqualifying, and you're right, it's 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 really not. Like there's really no like actual conflict or whatever. Like but, how how would this hurt a defendant? Yeah. It doesn't really hurt anybody, but it's just like this is pretty stupid. I mean, why right. did you do this? And so great, like you you get to keep your case going forward, but you just handed the right, right wing media apparatus something that is true. It's true and it's problematic. It, like, right. and, and the reality is when the history books are written 100 years from now and you know, if Donald Trump's elected president, they're gonna, the history books aren't going to say, oh, well, you know, Georgia rules section 30. They're not going to look at that. They're going right. to say here was a major inflection point in all of this right. when the prosecutor on this case made a huge misstep. That's right. what people are going to remember. And that's – I'm sorry. That's what ultimately matters. Like – yeah, I, I like things should be fair in the world. Things should work the way they're supposed to, and it's unfair that the people who are trying to do the right thing have these roadblocks put in front of them and have to be perfect. And and you know there's bad faith attacks coming at them, but that's the way it is. That's the way right. it is. And right. to beat this guy, to beat Donald Trump and the movement that he's running, I'm sorry, but we're gonna need to do better than that. We have, uh, you know, look, <laughs> the other thing is common sense doesn't go out the window for a rule. And so it's like, right. come on, if you're going to sit there and tell me that if you were handling the biggest case of your career against a, a person who is as slippery as it humanly can get in the U.S. legal system, and there's going to be more eyes on you and cameras pointed at your office and your courtroom than maybe any case ever. You're gonna put a romantic relationship anywhere near that? I, I, ah, it's crazy. That's a crazy. It really I is. wouldn't do it. And look, like I thought she yeah. sat on that stand, I do it. and I was, I was glad she took the stand. It was a very good choice on her part. She sounded reasonable, and again, common mm-hmm. sense wins out. I think people who listened 
were a little dissuaded, even if they were maybe on the fence about her, were like, okay, you know, now I'm starting to hear the reasonability a little bit. And she does seem to have a decent head on her shoulders. And I don't think she was just hiring him for, for some sort of financial gain. That was their whole theory. It's not a good theory. That's a, a shitty theory. Um, yeah. My guess, my guess, just a guess. I think they knew each other. I think she probably was talking about the case because they were comfortable and they were friends and he was a lawyer and maybe she brought him into the case because he knew things that maybe should have stayed secret because of grand jury secrecy. And maybe Mm. it was, she did need to outsource to somebody and he already knew a great deal about the case because he was spending a great deal of time with her. And you know, there's lots of ethics rules that govern you as an attorney and everybody to tell you people make errors and mistakes and they're not the worst things in the world. It wouldn't shock me if part of the reason that it made sense to bring him into the case was because he knew stuff about the case just by virtue of being close to her and around her. And it was better to keep the circle small and say, well, here's a guy who knows a great deal already and he's a lawyer and he's got a whole firm and maybe he can help us do this. That's my guess because I can't really make sense of it any, any other way no, of why no, you would I'm, bring someone I'm this close to you into your case. I can't. <laughs> um, it yeah. just is whack. But anyway, so that's yeah. been going on and the disqualification hearings are supposed to continue in a few days, I think, in early March down in Georgia. seems like most people feel that she won't be disqualified, but we'll see. I don't know. Judge McAfee down there seems like a very, very, very fair judge and has been excellent in the proceeding so far. Very quick, good, thoughtful. I like this guy a lot. Um, Okay, that brings us to our home stretch. The giant civil judgments threatening to wipe out Donald Trump's cash supply. (laughs) Uh, civil court. We're much more comfortable here. <laughs> <laughs> some some of us. So two major cases here. One is the defamation case brought by E. Jean Carroll, which you have definitely heard about if you're following this even a little bit. There's been an $83 million judgment entered against Donald Trump for defamation. He has not appealed that yet. He's seeking a stay of the enforcement while he does appeal. He probably will appeal. Add to that $83 million, the $464 million. I believe that's with interest. Is that right? Um, no, I don't think that okay. has. So I, I, a lot of money. Well, we'll, find, we'll find that out. I, I, it okay. might be. So $464 million and counting uh, judgment entered in the civil fraud case brought by the New York Attorney General. For just brief background, this has to do with Donald Trump misstating the value of his real estate assets in order to get more favorable loans from banks. The New York Attorney General, Letitia James, brought a civil fraud case against Donald Trump after a trial that went along for a long time down here on Center Street, causing a lot of traffic on the street that I live on down here in Lower Manhattan. (laughs) Donald Trump now has a judgment against him for $464 million. He's also likely to appeal that case. Um, but we should note he, in New he York. He filed notices of appeals today. He filed notice of appeals. I, I saw you fighting with people on Twitter about the intricacies here. Uh, <laughs> I know. Trump has the right to file an appeal. But in order to stop enforcement of the judgment, he will need to post a bond, a surety, some assurance that he'll be able to pay this judgment. 
And there is a lot of uncertainty about whether that's possible or how that's going to happen. Now, Donald Trump is a wealthy man. He is definitely not nearly as wealthy as you think he is or that he says he is. Um, And half a billion dollars that he owes now between these two judgments is a lot of money. And if he can't pay it himself, that might mean liquidating some of his real estate holdings. It might mean getting a bond from someone else, which is a difficult thing in normal circumstances if you are someone who is known for not paying their bills and doesn't have a lot of liquidity. Um, But if you are Donald Trump and you know a lot of uh, oligarchs, you know a lot of wealthy people Mm. out there with, you know, shady ties, it might not be so hard. Um, But this opens up another avenue for potential uh, serious corruption that we have uh, encountered (laughs) with this individual in the past. It also... There's also another source uh, of potential money, which is the RNC, who is Mm, out there uh, selling sneakers and all kinds of stuff for Donald Trump. And there is an open question about whether or not uh, any of that money is going to be rerouted to Donald Trump to pay his legal fees. Um, I know we probably don't have a lot of Republican voters who listen to this, but if we do, stop giving money to the RNC. Yeah, don't donate anymore. (laughs) Rana's gone. Okay. A couple things in turn here, just because I think so many people, someone came up to me in the gym who I kind of like, he's a friend of mine in New York, but not like a political friend. But I saw him when I was on the treadmill and he came up and stopped me and he said, what's going to happen with these judgments? And I was like, oh, good for you that you are keeping track of this. (laughs) In the gym? Um, Yeah, in the gym at Greenwich Ave. Yeah. So, okay. So a couple things in turn. Number one. Um, you mentioned, uh, uh, oh gosh, you, you, you like ran through a list of things and I want to just run through all of them. Um, I think, okay. The nuances argument, uh, people being stupid on Twitter and then yelling at me and telling me I'm being mean or stupid or that what I'm saying doesn't matter. Everyone has a right to an appeal. (laughs) You have the right to appeal anything. The, you don't need the money to file the appeal. The only thing you need the money for is to stay enforcement of a lower court judgment while you appeal. The appeal could take two years. This is a complicated case. I mean, if if a New York court saw merit to Trump's legal arguments down the road that there's some – this isn't like a – like the appeal of presidential immunity, let's say. Like that's like a very discreet – Either there, right. either this applies or it doesn't apply, and you're done. Right. This is a massive case about calculating fraud and whether fraud could be perpetrated this way or that way, and did this testimony and that's it. It takes years for commercial division courts to wrestle with these kinds of questions. To mm-hmm. stop or halt the enforcement of this judgment while that's all unfolding, you got to put up the money or a bond or like some financial institution posts something and says, we'll back it or give him a loan or whatever. He's struggling to do that, it seems. He has, The Daily did a great episode on this uh, last week. I highly recommend everyone listening if this is really interesting to you. Apparently, he has about $400 million in cash, right? So that's not even enough to cover this. And it would wipe out his cash supply completely, which any businessman, he can't do that, really. He's also banned from running his business for three years right, right now. And the court order 
puts an independent monitor who's a formal federal judge, Barbara Jones, who's been overseeing the Trump organization, it mandates her to hold that position for three more years. And it changed the type of review that she does, whereas when the Trump organization was doing like any deals over a certain amount, they'd have to go to this monitor within two weeks of making the deal and tell her about it. Now she gets pre-approval authority. So they hmm. can't sell an asset without her approval. So there's not going to be any like funny business about we're going to sell this and get a magic loan here and do all this. There's a monitor looking over their shoulder going to tell them what they can and can't sell and they're going to have to figure that out. All while their main executives are banned from doing business in New York. So it, this is this is truly like unprecedented they, I, how they are going to move forward as a business and pay these judgments is really a gripping question. You note the oligarchs thing. There's one really obvious problem to some oligarchs who put lots of money into Trump's businesses by his son's own admission. And it's that a lot of those oligarchs are sanctioned now. So you can't just take their money because if they're in any way tied to this, you'd be evading sanctions and then you're subject to criminal liability for doing business that's in violation of U.S. sanctions. Of course, there's other oligarchs that maybe aren't sanctioned, but that starts to really create like tricky income tax questions if someone else is paying your corporate judgments for your business. Sure. If Elon Musk decided tomorrow, I want to give him the money, I'm going to give him $500 million, how does the Trump organization like declare that as business income? And how's it going to pay taxes on it? And how are the courts going to treat will the monitor accept the Trump organization taking that money instead of selling an asset? Is that possible? Like, there's just so many weird questions about that. And then, lastly, with your point about the 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 RNC being used as a slush fund, the RNC can pay for legal fees, like lawyers working for Trump. Mm -hmm. I believe that the way the rules work, they cannot use the funds that the RNC has now to pay the judgments unless they specifically fundraise. To, to create a legal fund. Which they could do. People would give money. They, or they could, they could change could, the rules. <laughs> so, so this is what the New York Times was wrestling with. Well, no, no, no. By rules, I mean the Federal Election Commission rules. Oh, the Federal so Election So they, okay. they can't just take the RNC's money and pay off his judgments for business fraud. They can Unless use Trump it. president and yeah, okay. Mm. Well, okay, but they, these <laughs> judgments are going to be enforceable before then, right? So he, and right, he hopefully. needs to, to, to get these stays in place. So what they right. probably might do is create a legal defense fund and start fundraising on that. But as these reporters noted, and it's a great question, like your supporters, they do have finite amounts of money. Like every dollar you raise for your fundraising then isn't going to your campaign. And That's so true. if you start devoting all of the energy of the RNC and the Trump campaign to getting money into a legal defense fund, for a half a billion dollars in judgments, that's all money that's not going to be going to your re-election campaign. Yeah, so. and it's an extraordinary amount of money to raise. It's like, huge. It's a, a ton of money. But uh, they can't raise $500 million for one thing. Right. I, I, right. I'm the reality is he's he's got to sell that. an asset. He's got to sell an asset. And the yes. problem in real estate, which has its own problems too, having had issues, clients in real estate and stuff, 
it can be very tricky to unload an asset in a pinch. Like, yeah. I don't want to accuse real estate companies of anything. I just think the function of real estate developers and real estate companies is it's very, not house of cardsy, but like, if you have a disruption to one loan and another loan and another, like it trickles all through. If you use an asset as collateral for other assets and the income from that asset helps pay off the loans for this asset, and suddenly you need to unload a major asset to pay off something totally out of left field, it can Absolutely. really disrupt your entire structure. It could just bring an entire thing down in in a matter of months. Like, So it is fascinating to try to think about where hell he is going to come up with half a billion dollars yeah and and the reality is like this isn't abstract like if you're going to appeal he's going to have to do this because there these judgments will be enforced and they have there are they are judgments like they have been reduced to a judgment the county clerk has signed it and now the new york attorney general like at any moment unless it stayed can go out and start taking over his assets like they can start executing on this judgment so he's yeah. got to do something quickly and uh yeah we 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 just don't know what it is and this is in addition by the way while he's figuring that out he's got to figure out how he's going to defend himself at uh like four different criminal trials so uh and run for right. president oh by the way right so right uh, there's a lot right. going on a lot going on <laughs> a lot going on I, I make a tiny prediction, and I guess is he's going to ask New York appeals courts to allow a modified judgment to be posted or a modified bond. And he'll, he'll mm-hmm. say, can we agree that I'll put up $100 million instead of $400 million, and that will stay enforcement? And they may mm-hmm. say yes to that. And yeah, it wouldn't be the, treating the amount. Him. Yes. It's a lot of money. And um, – you know, I that wouldn't be that unusual in this space. It's it, it would be reasonable, sort of normal, yes. Because for because because we're talking about over half a billion dollars. Like we're talking about an extraordinary exactly. amount of money. And even <laughs> exactly. like if they like let him put up a hundred million, he still has these same problems. So right, know. right, it's still big problems. <laughs> and but also like on his other side, you if you're his attorneys, you argue like he does have hard real property assets so it's not like they're going anywhere there's not a fear that he all of his money is liquid and it by the time that the appeal's over it might all be gone like no he's got a roster of assets that you could say look here are all these things that i will promise not to unload during the time of appeal i'm posting this cash in addition to those things that's sufficient i would say that that actually would be fair it's just a question of is he even willing to part with a hundred million dollars? I don't know. Mm-hmm. I don't know. We'll see. Hard to Fun say. Stuff. Jeez, what a mess! Yeah. Oh yeah, man, what a mess! We didn't even get to the fun, like heady parts of what the hell does this all mean for America? But we'll try to get that discussion to you uh, asap, and maybe a little bit of a revitalized format for our show. We're talking about some ideas, and uh, yeah. We've got some ideas. Yeah. Um, Stay but, tuned. But, but last, yeah. last one, last word. Big picture here. Like there, if you remember last year, people were saying like, once we get into the heat of the presidential election, this is going to all be dominating the news. And here we are in February, and it's not really dominating the news. Like we just went through an hour of like 
there is a ton going on. And yeah. there's a real risk here that a lot of these things get delayed to the point where they're they're not going to be hot during like the heat of the presidential election. Um, and, and, you know, it, it's a, it's an indictment of our cable news culture, our media culture, that these are just sort of sitting out there while everything's going on as normal. Like this isn't normal. This isn't normal. And there's a risk here, like I said, that this doesn't really play a role in what people are thinking about, that there's a guy running for president under indictment for four different things who has owes $500 million for fraud to New York state. There's a real risk here that, that, that this stuff um, isn't going to be on people's minds when it really should be like, this is, this is serious conduct. And mm. um, all we could do is see, I'll, I'll wait and see because there's a lot of moving parts. Yeah. You know, I, I think you're right. I, I, I will push back a little in saying it may not be the biggest news every day, but it does feel like there's something substantial to report on in these cases almost every freaking week. And yeah. it is in that way dominating the press a bit. Um, but I think you are also right that I'm not sure like politically this matters that much. Um, although there are some polls that do suggest yeah. a non-negligible portion of the Republican Party is not going to vote for him if he's convicted. Is that just a talking point? Maybe. Um, but people are saying it, and he is losing about 40% of Republicans in every primary. So even if 5% of that 40% <laughs> feels that way, it's, over. it's yeah. a really big problem for him. Um, the f reality of this too is if you're running out of money like this, and you're going to start putting campaign money into all these fights. It would be really hard to fund a get out the vote effort and a serious uh, convention and a serious ad campaign and engagement when all of your money is going to this stuff. And he'll say that, you know, that's by design and that this is all an effort to bankrupt the party and him and blah, blah, blah. But the reality is he pushed all this until now. He could have been dealing with this. During his presidency, if he wanted, he's the one who said, I'm immune for four years and kicked it all to now. So it's kind of his own fault. That's true. Though there's a lot more to say on this, and I won't keep going because people have lives and can't be on Spotify for an hour and 30 minutes every night. So, what? Um, <laughs> okay. Know, can, but normal people can't. Yeah. Well, <laughs> we'll leave it there. Thanks again yeah. for joining us. We'll see you soon.